Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of flexible spaces. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. And today we are talking about Japanese architecture, known in Japanese as Nihon Kenshiku. Japanese architecture is known around the world for its minimalistic beauty and a sense of harmony with nature. It's evolved a lot throughout Japan's history, depending on regional climates, specific uses and functions, and who is using the building. Japanese architecture, like so many other things in Japan, has a long history characterized by interactions and borrowing from foreign ideas, and then long periods of isolation during which uniquely Japanese ideas evolved. Yeah. In recent years, Japan has imported a lot of ideas from Western architecture and have, of course, built upon those, as the Japanese often do. And these days, Japan is a leader in cutting-edge architectural design and technology. You can see some examples of that if you go back and listen to our Earthquakes episode. Pretty amazing how modern Japanese cities are extremely earthquake-resistant. Yeah, Japan has many well-known modern architects. And Japanese architecture is influencing Western architecture with its emphasis on simplicity, flexible spaces, and horizontal lines. Nice. So let's go way back, shall we? You want to step in the way back machine and take it way, way far back? Yeah, probably about as far back as we've ever gone. Yeah. So what were people doing in Japan's prehistory? People were living in thatched roof, dirt floor, dug-in houses. Yeah, so this would have been before 1000 BC in what they call the Jomon period. This is when people were hunter-gatherers and, yeah, they, they call them pit houses, right? They just dig a pit, kind of pack down the dirt so they have dirt floors, and then just build some sort of grass roof over the top. Pretty simple structures. Yeah. They uh, were hunter-gatherers, so they weren't always in the same spot. So why invest too much in building a structure? Yep. But in the Yayoi period, between 1000 BC and about 300 CE, should I say 1000 BCE to 300 CE? Yeah, I think <laughs> I guess so. that's the modern terms that we're supposed to be using, I think. But in this period, agriculture took on a bigger role in people's lives, right, Paul? Yep. So... You started to see more raised floor storehouses uh, made with metal tools. And there was some influence from China in this period that contributed to that. You can actually see examples of this style of architecture still in Toro Shizuoka, if that interests you. Yeah, I am interested. I didn't know all these places existed with all this old Japanese architecture. I definitely plan to swing by at some point. Yeah, it's pretty cool to see how people were living so long ago. Yeah, I've seen there's places with pit dwellings and elevated storehouses and a bunch of old tombs and stuff too, Yeah, which sounds kind of cool. Mm-hmm. So around the 600s, we've mentioned before, that's when a lot of influence from China was changing a lot of things in Japan. And that's when Buddhism came to Japan from China. So they brought the idea of permanent temples and shrines. And we talk a bit about this in our Temples and Shrines episode, if you want to hear more about that. But that influenced architecture in a lot of different ways. Yeah, so the oldest surviving wooden buildings in the world are actually at Horyuji, which is a temple southwest of Nara. 
So they were first built in the early 7th century. The temple complex consists of 41 separate buildings, but there's a main golden hall and a five-story pagoda that stand at the center in an open area surrounded by roofed cloisters. And I had to look up what a cloister is. What's a cloister? It is like a roofed hallway that's open on one or both sides to the outside. Okay. So kind of like roofed walkways. Yeah, I can think of places that fit that description on my recent trip at shrines. So the Golden Hall was in the style of a Chinese worship hall. Makes sense. Yeah. Given the time period. Yep. Uh, It's a two-story structure, and it used post and beam construction, which was typical of the era. And it was capped by a ceramic tile roof, which is also typical of the era, and I believe imported from China as well. That five-story pagoda looks pretty cool. Pagodas are built with a central pillar. Normally, people aren't even, you can't go inside them. They're not meant to be, you know, enclosed spaces for people to hang out in. So there's a central pillar that kind of supports the whole pagoda. Like everything's built around that. And I saw that that specific pagoda, the central pillar is from a tree that was felled in 594. Wow. And the pagoda's still standing. It's insane. That is, wow. I guess it's a good style of construction. Yeah. And I think I mentioned in a previous episode, but those pagodas with that central pillar, that makes them super earthquake resistant. They can sway with that pillar instead of just crumbling and falling apart. Yeah, it's definitely survived a few earthquakes over the years. Yeah. Uh, So in the early 8th century, the first permanent capital was set up in Nara, and they built the first permanent palace, the Heijo Palace. None of the original buildings remain, but you can still go and see a few reconstructed buildings there to get even more of an idea of what architecture was like at the time. And then not long after that, the Heian period began. That was between 794 and 1185. And in that period, heavy materials like stone, mortar, and clay were pretty much abandoned for more simple wooden constructions. So you'd have simple wooden walls, floors, and partitions. And this is kind of the era where we start to see the building blocks that became the pinnacle of Japanese traditional architecture in the Edo period, right? A lot of those elements were already present in this time period. Yeah. The more I read about this time period, I started seeing things that made me think of what I thought about as traditional Japanese architecture. Yeah. And buildings started to get bigger and bigger. So they started to rely on these regularly spaced columns to support the weight. And one great example of that that you can go see is the Phoenix Hall at Byodoin, a temple in Uji, where Paul, you and I went. Yeah. It is a beautiful building. Yeah. Really impressive. Bright red with those golden phoenix on the top, on the roof. Yeah. Very cool place. During this time, they also built the Kyoto Palace and some imperial villas in Kyoto that are still standing that you can go see and tour today. Also, I found it interesting during this time, especially around the 10th century, they started building in what they call the Shinden Zukuri, which is Shinden style. And the main characteristic of these buildings is that they were set up on lots that were 120 meters by 120 meters, so exactly square and symmetrical. And they would build the main building, which they called the Shinden, on a north-south axis, with the south side facing into an open courtyard. And they built two subsidiary buildings 
uh, to the right and left of the Shinden that ran east and west. And they connected to the main building with uh, covered corridors. And then they built U-shaped buildings around the main courtyard as well. Also, what I thought interesting during this time is that in the main room of the Shinden, it was a big open space that's partitioned by movable screens, which definitely makes me think classic Japanese architecture. Instead of the defined rooms, it's all movable and changeable with the occasion and what you need it for. Yeah, that element of movable walls and being able to reorganize spaces depending on what you're going to use them for, that idea was very big in Japanese architecture all the way up through the Edo period. I have some more stuff about those sliding walls too. Those are pretty interesting. And it was also in these buildings where they started designing seated positions with designed views from them. Yeah, those movable walls let them kind of... So a lot of times there would be a garden outside the building and you could open up the screens in a certain way so that you're almost framing the garden like a picture. You can look out and you have this rectangular frame created by these wooden doors looking out into the garden. Pretty cool. Smart. Yeah. So over the next 400 years or so, architecture diverged more and more from Chinese architecture in response to Japan's specific needs. For example, resistance to earthquakes. That's a pretty big deal because Japan has a ton of earthquakes. Also typhoons and the summer heat and sun. All these environmental factors affected the way that buildings were built. Also in the 14 to 1500s, castle architecture evolved a lot. And we talked a lot about that back in our castles episode, episode 18. So you can go back and listen to that if that interests you. And it should because it's awesome. I think that was a good episode. It was also during this time that the tea room first developed. The tea room is a room often built, detached to be quiet and peaceful, uh, simply adorned, just somewhere quiet to do the tea ceremony. Yeah. Because the tea ceremony was becoming popular and well-defined at this time. Yep. So that brings us to the Edo period, which I think you could say is kind of the height of Japanese traditional architecture. All this stuff that had been present in previous centuries built up into their final form, kind of. And, you know, after the Edo period, there's a lot more influence from the West, so the traditional style gave way to more modern ideas. But I think it's worth spending a bit of time in the Edo period here because it's pretty cool to see how all these different elements came together. Yeah, for sure. I wanted to talk a little bit about samurai residences during this time because those are probably the most common buildings still around from this time, partly because... It's only the nicer buildings that get preserved with time. Even the buildings that like the less wealthy samurai lived in don't exist anymore. It's mostly only like the top of the samurai homes that are still around. I did actually, when I visited Kanazawa, they have a lot of old samurai stuff there. And they do have some residences from the Ashigaru, which were like kind of lower class foot soldiers, the lowest class type of samurai. There are some of those types of buildings still existing. And if you want to see those, definitely go to Kanazawa. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. I definitely should have said mostly. Mostly the nicer buildings get preserved. True. But there's other buildings around still too. Uh, one thing I thought was interesting about the samurai buildings is that they had such a strict hierarchy. It even showed in how they could build their homes. 
for example, the size of the pillars you could use in your home and the type of gate you could have at the entrance were dictated by your place in the hierarchy. Yeah, I mean, social status is super important throughout Japanese culture, even to this day, right? But yeah, I can see it a lot in architecture, even with merchant houses. You have your storefront on the street and the width of that, the amount of street that you could take up depended on your status, you know, how rich and influential you are. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Also, during this time, the Tokugawa shogunate instituted a policy in which the daimyo, which were the lords of each little area in Japan, had to spend every other year in Edo, which is now Tokyo. And their family had to live there too. Yeah, to make sure that no daimyo had too much power in their little part of Japan. They always had to make sure to pay their loyalty to Edo. Also, their family being nearby made easy hostages if anyone did rebel. Oh my. Yeah. <laughs> but not many people rebelled during that time. It was pretty peaceful. Yep. So all these daimyo built really impressive homes in Edo because they had to spend so much time there and they were entertaining people there. They built parks and big complexes. So most people were not samurai. So right. everyone else was living in places too. If you were a merchant or a craftsman, you probably lived in a townhouse. Yeah, these are the kind of ones that I mentioned briefly where you have a certain width of space on the street and then the rest of the house is going back away from the street. So they're pretty long, narrow houses. Yeah, some of them go back quite a ways because you'd have the storefront, then you'd have the living quarters, and then probably even a storehouse all the way in the back. Mm -hmm. So it'd be one residence, but it just kind of kept going back. The storehouses were fire insulated, built with earthen walls rather than wood to keep all their precious goods from going up in flames. Makes sense. Several of the merchant districts still exist today in various towns. So there's lots of places you can go see what some of those homes looked like. But again, a lot of the nicer ones are the ones preserved. So if you see them, not necessarily everyone was living like that back then. Yeah. Yeah, you can see examples of that in Kanazawa too. Go to Kanazawa. Yeah, you should. Kanazawa is <laughs> a pretty cool place. You know, almost all of the gold leaf produced in Japan comes from Kanazawa. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Kanazawa. They have a tea room there that you can visit. The entire interior is covered in gold leaf. It's just this golden room. I can't even imagine how that feels. Yeah, pretty luxurious, I would think, <laughs> to have tea in there. Yeah. Fancy. So then most people weren't merchants or craftsmen either. Most people were farmers. Yep. And they lived in farmhouses. Makes sense. And as you mentioned earlier, the architecture of these is going to vary depending on where you lived. Mm -hmm. Are you up in the mountains? Are you on the coast? Are you in the northern part or southern part of Japan? Yeah. But there are some similarities that can kind of be seen through the dwellings throughout the country such as thatched roofs, sunken hearths, which they call irori, used to heat the homes. Mm -hmm. And they would have earth floors for the kitchen and the stables, but they would have raised wooden floors for the living spaces of the homes. Yeah, keep stuff clean. And if they were a really well-to-do farm family, they might even have some tatami rooms. Yeah, I had a bunch more about all that stuff. We'll get to that shortly. Yeah. 
Uh, most farmhouses were not preserved through time, but there are still some good examples out there. One being Shirakawago. Yeah, Shirakawago is an awesome place. They have kind of a specific type of architecture because of their super cold winters there because they're up higher elevation. So they're going to have like steeper roofs so that the snow just slides off the sides. And it's a, a simple gable roof, like just two sides. Well, actually, we, we're going to do a whole episode about Shirakawago and I'll talk a lot about the architecture there because it is very cool. Like the way that they're put together is perfect for the place that they are. Like those winters can be really harsh. You got this cold wind blowing through the valley and a ton of snow. It's hard to build a structure that will keep you comfortable through the whole winter. So yeah, if you want to go to Shirakawago and check those out, I definitely recommend it. Pretty fascinating the way they're put together. Now, Jason, can you elaborate a little bit on some of like the key features of design you know I can, that we Paul. see in the Edo period? Absolutely. There are a lot of common elements that you would see in this period that were in use for hundreds of years before that, but this was the culmination of all of those techniques and elements. So I have a list of those. First one is these buildings in this period, the Edo period, were almost always wood. And there are a few reasons for that. One is that quality timber has always been abundant in Japan. They got a lot of good trees there. Wood is also relatively resistant to earthquakes because of its flexibility. And wood in construction is usually left bare to blend in with nature. That's a big element that you see in Japanese architecture is that it's meant to be in harmony with nature. Like in the West, I feel like buildings are kind of made to protect us from nature. You know, we want to be completely closed off, not let any bugs in or anything. But in Japanese architecture, buildings are generally fairly open to the outside. You don't have a door that you open, you go inside, and then you slam it shut and lock it as soon as you're inside. Like you, you can just leave doors open to the elements. And now that you mention it, I don't ever recall seeing wooden buildings painted like a bunch of wild colors. Yeah. They all kind of retain a wood, natural wood color to them. Yeah, most of the time. The only ones that you'll often see painted are like religious structures, right? Mm, yeah. You see red shrines and stuff. Yeah. Another interesting element is that these buildings are often slightly elevated off of the ground. And there are a lot of good reasons for that too. Again, that helps with the earthquakes, makes them more uh, flexible and able to sway. And typhoons. Your place isn't going to flood as easily if it's raised off the ground, right? Right. Pretty smart. And rats. Yeah, I guess that would help too with those. Being raised off the ground also helps keep buildings cool during hot summers. Because hmm. there was traditionally, obviously, in that period and earlier, there was no insulation or air conditioning. And you get some hot, muggy summers in Japan. Yeah, so to be able to have a breeze going under the house helps keep the heat from just rising straight out of the ground into your living space. Also, that airflow is going to help prevent mold because Japan has very humid summers and mold is a big problem. Now, fires were fairly common because of all these wooden structures. So you might wonder, well, why did they keep using wood? Why not just switch to something that can't burn down like stone or brick or whatever? But apparently, mold, typhoons, and earthquakes were bigger threats than even these common fires. So it made sense to keep building with wood, despite the risk. I saw that during the Edo period, they would have small towns near Edo stockpile quantities of wood. So that if there was a fire and a bunch of homes burned down, they could just ship in the wood really quickly and like throw up 
a bunch of temporary houses really quick oh. to get everyone uh, housed again. That's a good idea. Yeah, so they were ready for They were a fire, whatever. We're, yeah. we're ready for this. Yeah, we can handle fires. <laughs> Another benefit of having the entire building raised off the ground is that it helps keep the interior clean. Paul, you mentioned that the kitchen and the stables or whatever would be on dirt floors and then the rest of it was raised. So even today in modern Japanese architecture, you'll see something called a genkan, which is like the entryway. Even in apartment buildings, like everywhere, everybody has a genkan. And the genkan is still even lower than the rest of the house so that you can leave your shoes there and there's no way for the dirt to make its way into the living space. And frankly, I wish it was like that all over the world because here we have this little entryway and then it goes right into the carpeted living room and there's, there's like nothing separating them. So you can even see just looking at it, there's more dirt in the carpet, like ground in there right by the entryway because there's just not a clean separation, you know? I totally agree with you. That's one aspect of Japanese culture where they just nail it. Yeah. They've got it right and the rest of us need to follow suit. Totally. Okay. Another element of traditional Japanese architecture is this very transparent, minimalist, simple construction. And this might have its roots in that idea that you could build new buildings really quickly when they burn down. There's no reason to make them really elaborate and complicated. I like the simplicity and the minimalism of it. So if you're going into one of these traditional Japanese buildings, you look up at the roof and it's just right there. Like there's no veneer on top of it, hiding it from your view. When you look at the walls, here in the West, we have drywall over all these studs and insulation and wiring and whatever in the walls. If you look at a traditional Japanese home, what you see is what you get. There's nothing hidden behind things, right? Right. So you could almost just look at how things are put together and be like, well, I, I know how to build this kind of building now because you can just see everything that goes into it. It's pretty cool. Another thing that you're going to see a lot of is those sliding wooden doors. Mm-hmm. These are pretty ingenious. So there are two types. Did you know there are two different types, Paul? I didn't. You know, I'd seen both of these different types, but it never occurred to me that there was really a difference. Like, I never noticed there were two different types. But there's Fusuma and Shoji. And both of them used to be called Shoji, but now they make a distinction between the two. So Fusuma are these vertical rectangular panels, and they're made of like a wooden lattice as kind of a structural base for the thing. And then you have these opaque, thick sheets of paper on both sides of it. So you don't see any wood in these fusuma, right? You just see the paper. And historically, these were painted, often with scenes from nature. So if you go to an old temple or even just an old residence, you might see beautiful paintings on these sliding doors. Yeah. I saw a lot of these at the temple I stayed at in Koyasan on my recent trip. Ah, Really cool paintings all over the place. So that's fusuma. Shoji are built in a similar way, but instead of opaque paper, they have just one sheet of translucent paper on one side of the wooden frame. So these ones, you can actually see light shining through them. They're not blocking light. But both of these different types of doors run on wooden rails on the top of the bottom so they can slide back and forth. And traditionally, those rails were waxed for lubrication to make it easy to slide them. Nowadays, though, you'll usually see a vinyl strip there to make them slide easier. And these things were not only used as doors, but windows or walls. Paul, you mentioned in the Heian period, I believe, you could take this big space and turn it into all sorts of different spaces depending on what you need to use it for. 
Yeah. So you could, you know, move around these different doors and you could use whichever one you wanted, depending on whether you wanted natural light coming in, you know, you can change the feel of a space just depending on which one you decide to use and where to place it. Yeah. And these doors weren't permanent. You could take it out of the tracks yeah, and change doors or not put another door in or whatever you want to do. Right. You can manipulate the space in any way you wanted. So those shoji doors, the ones with only one sheet of paper that let light through, those would be used around the outside of the house, because that's the only way to let natural light in. And then those fusuma, you'd see those more on the interior for dividing up rooms. Or you could use the shoji indoors too, depending on if where you wanted the light to get. So you could make a big room to entertain company in, or you could divide it up into smaller rooms for different sleeping quarters for different people. And you might be wondering, well, what about the furniture? They still have to move furniture around for these different rooms, right? But traditionally, people didn't really use chairs or big heavy tables. People were sitting on the floor most of the time. So you just have these little cushions. People would sit on there, easily moved. And then if there was a table, it would be like a low coffee table type thing. It would be pretty light and easy to move. And even in the bedrooms, people slept on futons that you could store in a closet during the day. So Spaces were super versatile in traditional Japanese buildings. Pretty awesome. Yeah, and I've seen that still shine through to today. People living in small apartments in Japan. At night, you pick up your furniture, slide it to a corner, and fold mm-hmm. out your futon to sleep on. And in the morning, you put your futon in the closet, and your bedroom becomes your living room. Yeah, I mean, there's a concept in Japanese culture, motainai, don't be wasteful. And that even applies to space, like physical space. Why have way more space than you really need? And these sliding doors also help because they don't have to open on a hinge. The sliding aspect saves a lot of space too, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I never thought about that too much, but why have a bedroom that you're just going to sleep in and then you're going to spend all your time out in the living room and the kitchen? Mm -hmm. It can all just be the same room. Yeah. And also with those shoji doors on the outside of the building, you could basically remove the walls of your house so that it's just completely open to nature. You can have a breeze going all the way through the house, which again helps a lot with those really hot, humid Japanese summers, right? And I thought this was funny too. Those shoji doors could be as short as 170 centimeters or five feet, seven inches in older buildings because Japanese people were small, but in recent years, the average Japanese person has actually gotten taller. So now, most commonly, if you see modern sliding doors like that, they're 190 centimeters now, or six foot three. Mm, That's good. Yeah. I've definitely ran into some doorways in Japan that I did not fit (laughs) under without ducking. Yeah. So in Western architecture, It's the walls that usually hold up the house, right? Right. You got load-bearing walls. But in Japan, if you have all these sliding doors that you can remove, what's holding up the building? Well, none of the walls are load-bearing. You have a frame of thick, sturdy beams called posts and lintels, or posts and beams, I think Paul phrased it as earlier. So you have these vertical posts, like really sturdy, thick wooden posts, and then the lintel or the beams are stretched between them up above. So you have like this really solid frame that's holding everything up. And then all the rest is just kind of draped on it. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that helps with earthquake and typhoon resistance. And it always blows my mind, this fact that some of these buildings didn't even use a single nail 
Like yeah. Japanese woodworking was so awesome and advanced that they could fit these beams together perfectly without yeah. having to put any nails through them. You have like two eight inch thick beams that they just carve to slide together perfectly to create a nice joint. Yeah. Sometimes awesome. they'd use pegs, I think, that they uh, made themselves. So no metal, no nails at all. Yeah. So let's talk about roofs a little bit. We mentioned those thatched roofs and those were common going way back. I mean, even at the very beginning with those pit houses, right? They were using thatch style roofs. Mm -hmm. But you might have an image in your mind of these clay tile roofs. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, those came to Japan in the 600s from China. And another thing that propelled those into much wider use is that in the Edo period, the Tokugawa shogunate ordered that all straw or reed thatched roofs and even wooden tiled roofs in Edo had to be replaced with kawara roofs. And that's those clay tile roofs. And that was to prevent fires. Okay. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah. So after that, tile making skills developed a lot. It became more and more common throughout Japan. And now I think for most people, that's kind of what they picture as traditional Japanese roofs. And they still use them even on modern houses in Japan. But these days, they can be made of a lot of different materials. You'll see cement or even titanium ones I saw are available these days. Oh, wow. Yeah. But traditionally, these roofs have a pretty gentle slope, usually extending a pretty far ways out from the edge of the house. And there are reasons for that. So they're going to provide a lot of shade, which again helps in those hot summers. It's going to help keep the interior cool. It directs water away from those shoji doors, because if you have paper doors and walls... You don't want those getting wet. Yeah, you're going to want your roof overhanging quite a ways. Yeah. And also outside of those very outer shoji doors, there's also a veranda called the Engawa, which runs all the way around the outside of the building. So that roof is going to stretch even beyond that to keep that dry. But then they'd also have wooden storm shutters a lot of the time that you could stretch out to even enclose that entire veranda. So you're basically... There's a big storm coming or something. You can put up those shutters and your whole house is just like a wooden box. It's totally enclosed. Yeah, you're not uh, leaving your paper doors up when there's a typhoon. Yeah. And then tatami mats, we mentioned those. So those are these floor mats. They're twice as long as they are wide. Normally about 0.9 by 1.8 meters, but it can depend on the region. They were a little different in different parts of Japan. And the center of these things was rice straw. That's kind of the cushioning, the padding in there. And then you'd have a covering of a woven rush straw and then a strip of cloth around the edge to kind of seal it all together. Although these days they might have compressed wood chip or foam cores in the middle instead of that rice straw. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And you'll see these everywhere in traditional buildings. You'll see them in temples, shrines, those merchant houses, the samurai houses. Any kind of traditional like hotel, the Ryokan that we've mm -hmm. talked about. Traditional restaurants might have tatami rooms. Yeah, yeah. And even today, a lot of Japanese homes have like one tatami room with uh, a little Buddhist altar in there. So those are kind of the main elements of traditional Japanese architecture. Well done, Jason. Thank you. Uh, I learned a bit. I'm glad. So that's kind of the conclusion of the peak classical Japanese architecture. Yep. I wanted to briefly mention what's come since then. Okay. Um, with the Meiji Restoration in 1868, 
They got another wave of that Western influence coming in. Yeah, bigger than ever before. You could see that especially in those port cities we've mentioned before, the five cities that got opened up first to international trade. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yokohama, Kobe being a couple of them. There's also this really cool looking open air museum called Meiji Mura, which has over 60 buildings from the Meiji period. That totally represent the style of the time. A lot of brick buildings Mm. is the influence they were getting from the West at the time. Yeah. Where is that? Uh, It's near Nagoya. Okay. Also, another big turning point, of course, was World War II. So many buildings got destroyed by bombing and fires that there was just a bunch of open space to rebuild all these cities. And they went with steel. That was the first time they really started using steel structures as a common thing. But they built these very boxy, plain-looking buildings. And you'll still see a lot of that in like most Japanese cities today. Yeah. But then they got to the 1970s, and there was kind of a backlash to that. And since then, they've started reincorporating the traditional Japanese styles, but in a modern way. So you start to see them using the environment more, playing it up to where the building's located. You start to see more stylized lines and less of the boxiness. Some good examples of that are in Odaiba, I would say. There's some cool buildings in Odaiba that aren't quite like any building you've maybe seen before. Yeah. Also, Roppongi Hills. It's a massive modern complex that's movie theaters, museums, hotels, apartments, all kind of built together in a way. Yeah, that's very modern area. So they're back to creating really beautiful buildings. And you can see quite a few of them walking through the major cities. I've always enjoyed that. Just looking up at the skyscrapers. Oh, that one's cool. Oh, that one looks nice. Yeah. So Jason, where can we go to see some of these awesome historical buildings? Well, throughout the episode, we mentioned a few places where you can see specific styles, but uh, I have a few more here. Of course, you can check out castles and shrines and temples for those specific types of buildings, but there are also plenty of architecture museums in Japan. In the western suburbs of Tokyo, you can find the Edo Tokyo Open Air Architectural Museum. They have a bunch of buildings, mostly from the last couple centuries. Uh, In Kawasaki, there's the Nihon Minkayan Open Air Museum, which has 25 preserved buildings from the Edo period. And they've been relocated to there from all over Japan. So you can see all sorts of different styles from different parts of the country, including some of those from Shirakawago. You can see some samurai houses, merchant houses. That's what's so cool about some of those open air museums Mm -hmm. is that It's really cool if you preserve like a neighborhood, but when you bring like 60 homes from all over the country, you can see a little bit of style of everything without having to travel everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. These are very cool places and these open air museums, it seems like a pretty popular idea in Japan. Like I've stumbled across these open air museums in different places that I visited. In Shirakawago, they even have, so there's a river going through the town, Shirakawa actually. Shirakawa means white river. So that's the river going through. And on one side of it, you have like the farmhouses where people are still living. And then on the other side of it, there's an open air museum with a bunch of 
even older ones. Like some of them have been brought from different places and some of them were originally from that area, I think. That's awesome. You get to stay in an old farmhouse and then you get to go visit the museum with even older buildings from all over. Yeah. Some of the ones there are as old as 300 years old and they're still standing. It's so cool to see how they're put together. Like you can go inside, you can go up to the roof and look at these ropes holding the roof together and stuff. And it's, it's crazy. It's amazing that wooden buildings survive so long. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. That's some quality timber. Yeah. And then uh, I mentioned Kanazawa too. If you're into samurai stuff, they have those old samurai houses. They're very cool. They also have museums with other samurai stuff. If you want to see their armor and the swords and all of that, it's pretty cool. Yeah, go to Kanazawa. Mm -hmm. Oh, and in the Geisha episode, I mentioned that in Kanazawa, there's a Hanamachi there too, the Higashi Chaya district, uh, where they have a lot of old traditional style tea houses and stuff where Geisha perform. Nice. So there's a lot of cool architecture in Japan. Go check it out. Yeah, and even while you're in Japan, just stop every once in a while and look around at the buildings. Yeah. And see what you notice. Yeah. All right, well, that's all I have. You got anything else, Paul? That's it. All right. I guess that's the end of the episode. Uh, If you want to see some pictures of cool Japanese buildings, check out our website, sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. And if you want to get in touch with us, shoot us an email to feedback at sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. That's our email address. And what are we talking about next time, Paul? On the next episode, we're going to be talking about tea in Japan. Yummy. I know you're into it. Gotta love Japanese tea. They do it the best. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Look forward to that. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.